Hello and welcome back to Days Gone By, a podcast that's part of the Scattered Abroad Network. My name is Jameson Stewart, and today's episode of Days Gone By is a sermon by Brother Robert R. Taylor Jr. This sermon was preached at the 2019 Memphis School of Preaching Lectures, and Robert R. Taylor Jr.'s topic was purity in building the right foundation. His text was 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11. So I hope you enjoy this episode of Days Gone By with Robert R. Taylor Jr. If you know anything at all, anything at all about the MSOP lectureship, you know that uh, Brother Robert R. Taylor Jr. has for a number of years now uh, closed it out. I know that he's appeared on 50 of the lectureships, at least that is the number that I am aware of. Think about that. Uh, no one has spoken more times at our lectureship over the years than has Brother Taylor. Uh, he was baptized in 1944, began to preach in 1949, and Monday night we were able to celebrate with him to some degree his 70 years of preaching, and he continues working hard. Thousands of sermons presented on radio and TV uh, has appeared in uh, hundreds of gospel meetings and lectureships over the years, uh, has been an instructor in the Online Academy of Biblical Studies for a number of years, was married for 55 years, two children and at least four grandchildren, and earlier this week we also announced something that I want to make sure everyone knows about because not everyone was present at the dinner uh, Rebecca, his daughter, and Tim, his son, have worked together in conjunction with Brother Taylor to set up the Robert and Irene Taylor Scholarship Fund for the Memphis School of Preaching. And this is a wonderful way for you or anyone who wants to, to pay tribute to his good work and to her wonderful memory by contributing to this fund at your discretion all you have to do is uh, write a check to the Memphis School of Preaching and then in the memo section uh, put down there for the Robert and Irene Taylor Scholarship Fund and all of those funds will be uh, dedicated to uh, that particular fund um, for uh, the future. And so we'd like to build that up over time and continue to use it in perpetuity for years and years to come. And so uh, feel free, if you're looking for a worthy cause, to, uh, to consider that. But the main thing we've come here tonight for, as you know, is what we always come here for on Thursday night. Brother Taylor has an inimitable way of taking you through the Bible from uh, generations to revolutions, as the little boy said in Bible class. From Genesis to Revelation, he has such a broad view of the scriptures and such a wonderful working knowledge of God's word that he's a perfect man to talk to us about purity in building the right foundation. I can promise you, you're going to hear the word of God spoken tonight by his faithful servant. It's a privilege to present to you Brother Robert R. Taylor, Jr. Thank you so kindly, Brother Clark. What a genuine joy it has been through the years to come and speak and participate in this good, 
great and grand lectureship. When I came for the first time in 1970, I was in my late 30s. Now, tonight, I'm in my late 80s. And it doesn't seem all that long since I appeared first. I think the first year or two that I spoke, I presented a series of lessons called The Bible Doctrine of Final Things, and then a series one year on Christ in the Home. And I enjoyed so much being with the students at that time. I've had the privilege through the years of probably preaching in at least a hundred or more gospel meetings where products of this school were the regular ministers. And I have enjoyed being with every single one of them. It is a credit to them and to their family and to this congregation and especially to the Memphis School of Preaching, the kind of preaching, the kind of lives, the kind of uh, success that they have enjoyed. One of my favorite anecdotes through the years has been about a man who was farming, and in his plowing one day, he plowed up a genie bottle. When he uncorked it, a genie sprang out, and she said to him, I'm your genie, and I have come to grant you one of two requests. He said, I thought the genies always offered at least three. She said, well, time is hard. It's only two today. <laughs> well, he thought a little bit, and he said, my wife and I have always wanted to visit Bible lands, but one of us is afraid to fly, and the other is afraid to get on a ship. Is there any way that you can build a highway for us between the edge of our farm and the western boundary of Palestine? Well, the genie thought just a little bit, and she said, maybe I ought to go to the request, the second one. And so the man responded. He said, my wife and I dearly love our regular preacher, but we feel like he preaches entirely too long. And is there anything that you can do to shorten his messages? The genie thought just a little while and then responded by saying, that highway to Bible lands, would you like it to be two-laned or four-laned? <laughs> That's one of been my favorites of the time. The Memphis School of Preaching has been near and dear to my heart. I've watched it grow. I've watched it make spiritual progress. I have respected the men who directed it. I've respected the faculty. And I have loved the young men and their families who have come to this good and great school. But now for our study this evening, purity and building the right foundation. And I want to emphasize four words in that title uh, that has six words. I want to emphasize something about purity, and then something about building, and then something about that great word, right and then something about the foundation. Those are four important words in the title of my lesson tonight. First of all, in regard to purity. Purity is the opposite of uncleanness. It is kin to the word holy. In fact, it and holiness 
are synonymous in the Bible. We read about God and His holiness. We read about Christ and His holiness. We read about the Holy Spirit and His holiness. We read about the Holy City. There are passages in the Old Testament that suggest that title belonging to the city of Jerusalem. We read about holy brethren. And so the word holiness is not only important in many of the great songs that we sing, but in our study of the Bible and in our appreciation of the timeless trinity. That's an expression that I love to talk about, the timeless trinity. Timeless is suggestive of their eternal nature, and trinity suggestive of their being three. Not one in the Godhead, not two just in the Godhead, but three. God the Father, the eternal Word, which became our amazing Savior and Lord, and then the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that has given us the Bible. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Paul says in the last book that he wrote, the book of Second Timothy, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And so purity is a very precious word. We have heard that discussed from many, many angles this week, and every one of the speakers has done such a supremely good, such a wonderful job in the presentation of his message. And I'm sure that's true of the ladies' classes as well. And then we have that important word of building. The Bible teaches us that this universe is the result of the creative power of the three in the Godhead. And every single one of them had a part in that. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's the beginning sentiment of the Bible. And that little word that describes God here, we are told by Hebrew scholarship that it is suggestive of plurality. And we learn from other passages that Christ, the eternal word, was certainly involved. We know from a passage that is given in Job that the Holy Spirit garnished the heavens, and so all three were vastly involved in the making of the universe. And so God is the builder of everything, we're told in Hebrews, the third chapter, and he's the builder of it all, and the building of the universe is certainly one of the most important. We have so many builders and buildings that are suggested to us in the Bible. It was in the Old Testament how important it was for people to build on a right foundation. And so the, the study of building, we have the building of the universe, and then we have the building of the ark, greatest ship, no doubt, in all the history of the world. It must have been a mammoth task for the three sons of Noah and he himself to have built such a vast ship that we read about in Genesis 6 and Genesis 7. We read about the building of the tabernacle and the chapters in the book of Exodus Chapters 25 through 40 tell us about the details of that tabernacle. It was designed to be a temporary 
a house. And later on, David will prepare, and his son, Solomon, his son, will continue to do the work and produce the permanency of the temple. And that temple would stand until the time of the Chaldean invasion when Nebuchadnezzar came with his Chaldean army and conquered the land of Palestine and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and its fabulous temple. <clears throat> and then we have the building of not only the temple, but also the building of the city again, and the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, as we read about in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra. And then in the New Testament, we have the buildings that are involved in that section of Holy Writ. For instance, when Jesus and the apostles came into the regions of Caesarea Philippi, he asked, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now remember back in Matthew, the 10th chapter, they had been sent out on what we might say, the restricted or the limited commission. They were not to go among the Gentiles. They were not to go among the Samaritan people, a country sandwiched between Galilee in the north and Judah or Judea in the south. They were to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Therefore, they had been in contact with what the Palestinian people were saying in regard to the identity of Jesus Christ. And they responded by saying, some, that thou, some say that thou art John the Baptist. Some say that thou art Elijah. Others say thou art Jeremiah. Others were less sure and simply denominated the observation, or maybe the observation, one of the unnamed prophets of the Old Testament. But he was not John the Baptist raised from the dead. Herod even began to parrot that idea. He was not Elijah, the great the fiery prophet of the Old Testament, who did battle with Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel. He was not the weeping prophet from Anathah, just north of the city of Jerusalem, who lived in the days of Judah's final home in the land of Palestine, right before they were taken into captivity. And yet, and then, we have others along that same line. Jesus said in the course of that message, but who say ye that I am? And Peter, as he often did, acted as the spokesman for the other apostles. He said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. I believe this conversation occurred in the shadows of Mount Hermon. I believe that's where Jesus will be transfigured in Matthew, the 17th chapter. It was the highest mountain peak in all that area. But Peter's statement, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, was far, far higher than Mount Hermon that was about, uh, four, about 10 or 12,000 feet above sea level. And then he promised to do something in the way of building. He said, Upon this rock 
that is the confession that Peter had just made, Darth the Christ, the Son of the living God, upon this rock I will build my church, no S on the end of that, and the gates of hell or Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee, talking to Peter, I will give unto thee, This is one of our young men from Ripley, and he's graduating in just uh, three or four months and uh, will become a regular preacher at some fortunate congregation. We love uh, his family. But now to what Jesus promised to build, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Jesus knew that they were going to put him to death, but his entrance into the Hadean realm of comfort would have nothing to hinder his building the church. Even though he died on Friday, he will arise from the dead on the following Sunday morning. Three days and three nights. That has puzzled some people. How do we get three days and three nights from Friday until Sunday morning? Remember the Jewish method of counting time they counted any portion of a day or night as one day night. And so he was in the tomb one day and one night, Friday. He was in the tomb one day, one night, Saturday. He's in the tomb a part of the third day, and therefore no problem about the three days and the three nights. That's all, that is how long he would be in the temple, or be in the grave. And he knew that he would come forth from the grave, tromping over the tomb, and just a short time after he was raised from the dead, he established the church. He had made promise that he was going to do that, and he fulfilled that promise. And that promise will begin to be fulfilled in Acts, the second chapter. We sometimes talk about the church in its various stages of development and the eternal planning and purposing and the prophecies and the promises of the Old Testament, the great preparation work that was done by Jesus and John the Baptist, and then the church has been in existence on a permanent basis and in a perfected kind of way from Acts the second chapter onward. We don't have to find an actual congregation in every, uh, every decade since then because the church is in the Word of God. And when the Word of God is proclaimed, when the Word of God is heard, when the Word of God is acted upon, we have the beginning of the church, the beginning of another congregation, and they did such a fabulous job in the first century uh, perfecting that which had begun by Jesus in Acts the second chapter. And so we have that kind of building. And then heaven is referred to as a building. One of the great portraits that we have of heaven is found in 2 Corinthians the fifth chapter. And there we read about a building, a mansion that Jesus is going to prepare. He stated in those beautiful three verses in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. 
Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus made some promises. He based it upon their belief in God, their belief in him, their belief in the second coming of the Lord, and their belief that there would be a reality to the heavenly world. So heaven is a place that is built, a a building, a house not made with hands. And so we have great emphasis in the Bible about building. And then we have the word right. And this is so important in a world that has gone crazy, absolutely crazy, over wrong things. People are far more likely to believe that which is wrong than they will in believing that which is right. They they had much rather hear error as to hear the truth, the truth that is capable of saving us from from the horrors of hell. And so we have that as a part of our great heritage in talking about uh, the right. The right is the opposite of wrong. It's the opposite of iniquity. It's the opposite of wickedness. It is the opposite of transgressing God's will upon a permanent basis. And then we have that wonderful word, foundation. And this is something that undergirds This is something that supports the building. And so, how important the foundations are. The sum is suggested in the Old Testament. If the foundations be destroyed, what shall the righteous do? Well, the righteous need to do exactly what they did in New Testament time. Stay with the truth, believe the truth, preach the truth, defend the truth, and even die in its warm embrace rather than to give it up, rather than to turn from the right to the wrong. So here we have those important words in our title. And then we have some implications that I think come from this uh, title. And by implication, I simply simply mean that there's some things that are suggested When my little grandson, Ron, was about three or four years old, he was riding riding one day with me in the car. They didn't have uh, uh, child restraints then, so he was in the front seat. And I was kind of dangling my ignition keys as I was riding along. And he said, Granddaddy, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm just jangling the car keys. And I guess it's just a, a bad, or rather, uh, a bad habit, habit upon my part, and I said, "Do you have any bad? Do you have any bad things along that line?" He said, "No, I've got a good brain." Well, I knew that he knew something about implication. When we talk about a right foundation, that implies a wrong foundation, and I've listed about a dozen points in the material in the book, as well as 12 points in the next section of that book, of my chapter in the book. And here are some of the things that I listed. 
maybe some that I did not list. First of all, a wrong foundation is universalism. There have been people and still are who are convinced that there is not going to be one single soul in hell. I had taken Irene to a doctor here in Memphis some years back, and while I was waiting for the doctor's visit to take place and to be concluded, I picked up a magazine, I think it may have been Newsweek or Time, and there was a large area of thought, maybe three or four pages, and the person that wrote that article contended there will be no people at all in hell. He went on to detail some of the mass murderers that we read about in history. He talked about Stalin, he'll be in heaven. We talked about Hitler, and he'll be in heaven according to this man. And yet those two men together put to death millions, multiplied millions of people back in the 1930s and the 1940s. And then Stalin continued on that a little bit later after the other one had died. And so there are those who contend that hell will not be uh, occupied by anybody. Well, a person like that needs to read the latter part of Matthew, the 25th chapter. It closes upon the note that there's going to be everlasting punishment for those who are situated on the left hand, as well as eternal or everlasting happiness for those who are situated on the right hand. And so there are other passages as well. For instance, in Revelation 21a, but the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and putting Revelation 22 by the side, all liars. The one who the one who loves the lie. These people are going to be in hell and not going to be in heaven. And so universalism is a wrong foundation. There's another wrong foundation that many people have accepted, namely that God and Christ and the Holy Spirit are so good, and they are. We'd be quick to affirm that. But they say they are so good and kind and merciful that they're not going to send anybody to hell. Well, in reality, people send themselves to hell by their lack of obedience, by their dying and unbelief, and disobedient. But they feel like there'll be nobody in hell due to the fact that God is merciful, due to the fact that he's the God of majestic love. And then there are others that suggest as a wrong foundation that we're all on our way to heaven, and they're just simply different routes to get there. You may be traveling one road, I may be traveling another road, Thousands of people might be traveling roads of their own choice. Well, Jesus said in one of the great I Am declarations in the gospel according to John, and there are 25 of these that are given in the book of John. Each one has be- begun with... <clears throat> I have a little trouble with my hearing aid. <clears throat> there are 25 of these, uh, of these I Am declarations... And one of them is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except by me. 
Well, Jesus refuted in one stroke of a message written by John the Apostle the very refutation of this contention. And others tell us as a wrong foundation that a person can be saved by faith only. A prominent creed book, the Methodist Discipline of Faith, has taught for years that faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort. Well, it's not wholesome or healthy, and it's not true doctrine at all. It's wrong doctrine from beginning to end. Hebrews, the 11th chapter, ought to refute that completely for anybody's satisfaction. And James has this to say in the last half of James, the second chapter, as he said, a man is justified by, not by faith only, but by doing God's will. James 2 and verse 24. And then another wrong foundation that people are teaching today, that we're saved by grace only plus nothing. Well, grace is God's favor, and we appreciate that favor every day a little bit more. I think I speak the sentiments of every one of us. But the Bible does not teach that we're saved by grace only plus love. Let me show you where that will lead logically. The Bible tells us that the grace of God that bring us salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. And so the fact that God's grace has appeared to all, if a person is going to be saved by, by grace only, then that just simply means that everybody is going to be saved regardless of the condition in which he or she finds himself or herself at the coming of the king of terror, namely the coming of physical death. This is another wrong foundation. The Bible teaches us in Ephesians, the second chapter, that we're saved by grace through faith, faith and grace, faith on man's part and grace on God's part. Another wrong foundation that people are building on today and is quite popular in our society today is postmodernism, which is a rejection, a total and absolute rejection of authority. They do not believe that you can say that one thing is right and another thing is wrong. But the Bible teaches that there are wrongs and the Bible teaches us that there are things that are right. This, of course, is another wrong foundation. And then there are those who teach, and this is especially true of the Catholic world, they believe that if a person leaves this world not quite ready for heaven, that he goes or she goes to a place called purgatory, and there is a temporary stay until a person is purged of his sins or her sin, and then it's on to heaven. My wife Irene wrote for, or rather uh, worked for a, a popular uh, lawyer in Nashville, Tennessee, a Mr. Dolan. Mr. Dolan was an avid Catholic. He would go to Mass every morning before he would come to work. He often told Irene, if the governor calls and wants me to come to Capitol Hill, Tell him I will come after I go to Mass. 
But he told Irene from time to time about purgatory. He was an immensely uh, wealthy person, had much in the way of physical possession and physical capital. He said, I've been praying for my grandfather for a number of years trying to get him out of purgatory. Well, that's filled Catholic coffers over and over again by people who have accepted that. But that's a wrong foundation. That's a wrong thing to build our hopes on. And then another one that I have come in contact with, perhaps you have too, is the concept suggested by Stead Turner some time back. I read where in an interview he was asked about his belief in heaven, and he said, I do not want to go to heaven. Heaven is a boring place. And who wants to go to a boring place? He said, I look forward to going to hell. Well, when Mr. Turner, if he dies in unbelief, he won't have to spend even half of a second before he'll be singing, not singing, but singing a different tune. That is a wrong foundation upon which to build. But now on the positive side, what are some right foundations upon which to build? First of all, the Word of God. John expressed it in John 8, 31, 32, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Whenever the preachers went forth from Acts the second chapter, they went forth and preached, preached the truth and how important it is. Another right foundation can be referred to as the doctrine of God, or the doctrine of Christ, or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It was pointed out in one of the previous lessons that doctrine simply means teaching. Some people say, I'm against all doctrine. Well, he might as well say, I'm against all teaching. And since the Bible is filled with doctrinal teaching, then he's against everything that is found in the Bible. This is another right foundation upon which to build. That is, the truth shall save, and we must be obedient to it. Another right foundation is an acceptance of the gospel plan of salvation. We're told exactly what to do in order to become a Christian. I read the answers that Billy Graham gave to the public, I guess, 50 or more years. He's passed on to the next world, and he knows now that baptism was a lot more important than it ever was in his theology. And his theology never did include baptism or the remission of sin. But Billy Graham is not an authority in the realm of religion. And then another right foundation is the fact, well, let me go back to this plan of salvation. In order to become a Christian, there are things that we are obligated and that we are commanded to do. We are commanded to become a hero. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. We're commanded to believe. Paul told the, the Philippian jailer, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house or thy family. And then we are to repent. 
Peter told the convicted people on the day of Pentecost when they asked men and brethren, what shall we do? He said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sin. And then it is essential that we make a good confession. This is something that we do with a voice, but it comes from the Bible heart. Before Philip was willing to baptize the man from Africa, the Ethiopian eunuch, he said, if thou believest, thou mayest be baptized. And he made the good confession. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And Paul tells us in uh, Romans the 10th chapter how important the confession of Christ really is. And then there's baptism. The religious world has declared outright war on baptism. Many of the preachers in the various denominations will emphasize faith and repentance, and that's about as far as they go. But the Bible teaches the importance of baptism. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. I taught Bible for university credit up here at Martin, Tennessee, University of Tennessee at Martin. I had close to a thousand students that took my courses across the year. Usually would have about a hundred students each year. And I recall giving a test one time in which fill in the blanks. And one of them was taken from Mark 16, 16. I left out believing, I left out baptism, I left out two or three other key words in that passage. One young lady, and filling it out, she was not about to use baptism in filling out Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and prays shall be saved. That's what she actually put. Guess how much credit she got for that answer? <laughs> Zero. And that's about as bad as I could give her for that. But imagine that kind of blasphemy against one of the truly great passages in all of the New Testament. Paul expressed it this way in Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ did put on Christ. That's the American Standards rendering. You did if you were, did what? You put on Christ. If you were what? if you were baptized into him. The converse would be, you did not put him on if you were not baptized into him. In fact, there are three little propositions that are important in the New Testament. One of these is unto, and then another is into, and one is in. Unto, traveling in the direction of. Into, coming from the outside, making a transition, coming to the inside, where there is redemption and salvation. And then one's position after that, he is in Christ. Paul suggested in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away, behold, all things are now, are now new. And that leads me to another wrong foundation, that is, the unimmersed will still be saved. That was a question that faced the restoration preachers back in their day. 
but it's a question that people sometimes ask today. Don't tell me that a person has to be baptized in order to go to heaven. Well, there will be some people in heaven that were never baptized who have lived in the Christian age. Every baby that's been born and died before reaching the age of accountability, not subject to baptism in that part of his or her life, will be in heaven. Those who were never mentally alert and never mentally responsible for their deed, they'll be in heaven, and there are people who were not baptized. We're talking about accountable people. We're talking about people who know the truth and ought to obey the truth. The unimmersed are not going to be saved. In fact, the unimmersed person has never made contact with the blood of the Son of God. Paul tells us in a very definite, crystal clear way in Romans the sixth chapter how that we're baptized into the death of Christ. That's where we make contact with the blood. We do not make contact with that blood the moment we hear the truth, even at the moment we believe the truth, even at the moment that we repent of our sin. We're traveling unto in the direction of, or even when we make the good confession. It's not until we're baptized that we pass from the outside to the inside, that we make that great transition from being an unbeliever and a disobedient person in becoming a saved person, a person that now enjoys salvation. And another right foundation is right worship. We worship God in song, and what a marvelous job Brother Stephen has done tonight. We worship God in singing. We worship God in praying. We worship God in preaching and teaching His Word. And what marvelous preaching and teaching that we have heard throughout this week. Some of the greatest sermons I think I've ever heard, I've heard in this auditorium this very week. And it's important that we continue to do that kind of thing. We worship God around the Lord's table, and we do it every single Lord's Day. In fact, God has bound the Lord's Day and the Lord's Supper together. And there's a principle that is stated in Matthew 19:6: what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And the religious world is trying to put asunder that which God has bound together. The Lord's Supper ought to be so meaningful to us. I think I've only missed partaking of the Lord's Supper maybe three or four times since I obeyed the gospel in 1944 and wish I hadn't been a wish I could have partaken of it then. But the Lord's Supper has meant so much to me and I know has meant so much to you. Brother Gus Nichols said that after I have observed the Lord's Supper on Sunday, I believe that I'm strengthened to the point that I can resist any temptation that faces me in the coming week. Coming week. I think that's a marvelous tribute to the Lord's Supper and what it ought to mean. And then we are to give, make a contribution in order that the Lord's work may continue to go forward. These are some of the right foundations upon which we are to build. The foundation of the mission of the church, the foundation of the organization of the church, the foundation of the purpose for which we have the church in our world, 
the foundation of laying of laying a good account before the Lord that we may hear his son say come judgment day well done thou good and faithful servant thou hast been faithful over a few things I will make thee ruler over many things I'm going to close the lesson again with extending the invitation to become a Christian a person must hear the truth believe the truth and obey the truth and particular that means to believe in Christ after hearing the truth to repent of sins to make the good confession and to be baptized for the remission of sin I heard of an artist one time who was very impressed with Revelation 3.20, namely a message that was given, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come unto him and will sup with him and he with me. Upon finishing his painting of Christ at the door, he called in some of his artistic art colleagues and showed them the portrait that he had made and asked them to critique it. Almost everyone among his friends said, great job, good, good job. But there was one critic who said, I see a flaw in your, in your, in your portrait of the Lord. And he said, what is that? Well, you don't have a doorknob for the Lord to open and come in. And the producing artist said, that's no oversight on my part. part. That's the way I intended it. You see, the door is open from the inside. And we to open it from the inside by gospel obedience. God has a second law of pardon. And how merciful it is that he has made possible the remission of our sins after we have become a child of God. We are to repent and pray and confess that deed. If you need to be obedient to the gospel of the Son of God, His love reaches down into your heart, and our spirits are moved as we sing, and will you come if you need to. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on the Scattered Abroad Network. We are grateful for your continued support as well as your continued prayers. If you would like to find out more about our network, please visit our website at scatteredabroad.org. We look forward to studying with you again soon. May God bless you.